0: Hello, folks, and welcome to AOA. Thanks for making us a part of your day today. I tell you, folks, it is President's Day, so the markets are closed here on February twentieth, and because of that, we wanted to go back through and revisit some of the conversations we've had over the past couple of weeks. On today's show, we're going to be talking about cattle insurance first and foremost. Here in just a little bit before segment two, we're going to talk with Bryce Monjen of OIDA about that ongoing battle against California's Assembly Bill number no. five. In segment three, Shauna Morris of the international dairy food association will join us we've got that battle going on between the united states and canada with regard to access to their dairy market sean is going to fill us in on how that battle is proceeding in the political arena before segment four We're going to talk with Chris Brosart. He's the chair this year of the Soy Transportation Coalition. We're going to get his updates on how things are shaping up for transportation before spring planting gets underway. But first, we're going to kick things off here with a conversation from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association trade show. Got a chance to catch up with the folks from the Red Summit Agency, and I asked them about the insurance industry and why it is changing so much. We are going to kick it off here with the insurance discussion. And I'm bringing this to you now because last week had the opportunity to be in New Orleans at the, uh, the National Cattlemen's Beef Association annual get together. And one of the things that surprised me on the trade show floor was the number of insurance products out there for cattle producers. It seems as though that whole market has exploded over the past couple of years. And I wanted to get some of the details joining us now to describe this market is ross bronson he's an ag risk consultant with the red summit insurance agency and ross thanks for joining us today yeah my pleasure why are we seeing so much more insurance at the cattle con than we saw maybe five ten years ago ross what's changed in the industry here recently
2: i think there's two things in particular that are driving this uh for the industry the first is that we're getting some products that are really beneficial to to producers uh you know the prf and the lrp in their in their season are great and there's been improvements over the years and the rma is really standing behind them as producer beneficial products the other thing is i think that risk management as we move we're really starting to shift from generation to generation in the ranching industry like across the rest of the business world from the boomers leaving and i think that new producers and or progressive producers are realizing that this this idea of risk management really needs to be at the front of their thinking um, if they're going to continue in a sustainable way.
0: Ross, that makes a lot of sense. And on the grain side, we see banks really encouraging or requiring some kind of risk management insurance product, particularly for new farmers. Are we seeing, hearing similar stories on the insurance requirements for new ranchers coming in? Are Are banks requiring them to lock in some protection?
2: I've heard a few of those in the wind. I don't think it's um, going to be mainstream yet. I wouldn't be surprised at all down the road to see it that way. I know LRP in particular, some people are are, are wanting to require on new cattle loans and some things like that. Uh, so I would definitely see it trending that way. Um, it's not widespread
0: yet, though. Okay. Well, that makes sense. I want to touch on some of those products that are making sense for producers here in 2023. You mentioned LRP. That's the one we're in season four right now, that sign-up period. Livestock risk protection. Ross, give us the elevator pitch. How does this work?
2: Yeah. So livestock risk protection is essentially a, a simple hedge. You're ensuring an expected value at a certain future date. And, that, and if that is higher, you owe premium. If it's lower than your expected value, then you get paid out. So it's protecting against market decline without the upside risk associated with a more true hedge in the futures market.
0: Okay. And now the thing that always confuses me a little bit with LRP is because the sign up is multi-stage. I understand there's an application, but that doesn't necessarily put the insurance in place. Is that right?
2: Yes, that's great to bring up. So you you have to have an an application in which is good for several years, actually. And that just gets it so that they've gone through all of the vetting process of of approving you for the insurance. And then they have what's called an endorsement. And the endorsement is what actually locks in your coverage at the period that you choose to uh, accept that expected ending value.
0: Okay. So I assume that I'm going to have these calves coming on the ground. I'm going to need to insure them at six weight in next March. And I could buy that coverage. Is that, am I thinking about it correctly? Yeah, you you got the right
2: idea. It's it's ensuring the time period at which you intend to sell.
0: Okay. And we can insure those in in smaller windows, right? Than an annual uh, basis. Yes. It's 13 weeks up to like 50
2: and uh, you can kind of pick anywhere in there, with, but it's on a certain week period. So I think it's like a three to four week difference between each period.
0: Okay. And so this LRP sign up, this is happening right now, Ross, is that right?
2: Yes, it's, it's a rolling coverage type situation where you can sign up now. If you end up buying some calves for pasture in
0: late spring, you can sign up then. It, it, has, it has rolling coverage. All right. So folks, keep that in mind. If you're looking to manage some of the risk on this high dollar cattle complex investment, keep that LRP in mind. But Ross, I also wanted to talk to you about the other product that was much discussed down there at CattleCon, which is PRF, that pasture range forage land insurance, rainfall insurance. How does that work? The the best
2: way to think about PRF is it's the rancher's crop insurance
0: and your crop is your
2: grass, but you don't harvest your crop per se. You, You do it through your cattle. So they've used the direct correlation between precipitation and projected forage growth to create a precipitation-based yield coverage is, is really the best way to think about it. And uh, it's based off your 70-year precipitation average. And that's where it's become so beneficial for producers is in most of our country, over the 70-year average, we have trended drier. And so it, it has it has kind of swayed things in the producer's favor.
0: Premiums on the PRF, given that we've had several years of drought, Ross, is that raising the cost of that kind of protection? Not that we
2: see and not that we're hearing is going to happen. At NCBA in, in particular, the RMA explained that they understand that they are paying out aggressively and they it's kind of designed that
0: way. Okay, glad to hear they're on board with that. Given that that's what the program is for, when is the sign-up for PRF, Ross, and how does that work? So the sign-up period for PRF
2: is from September first through December first, and any time throughout that uh, period, you can lock in uh, a PRF policy. You can have discussions long before that. We are having discussions, especially with our larger producers who think ahead. A lot of um uh, large, real business minded ranches will have this coverage kind of figured out by, by summer. So you, you can start the process now, get some quotes, but you can't actually lock in your coverage until that three month period. And everyone tends to wait until the end. Uh, you know, we, we get a big influx in that last week or two of, of December, but you can definitely start that conversation early.
0: Start that conversation earlier, folks. Help these agents not have a f- flood of paperwork. Just before the sign-up day, we've been speaking with Ross Bronson. He's an ag risk consultant at Red Summit Insurance. You can find them online at redsummit.com. That's two D's, two M's, one T. Ross, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Stick around, ladies and gentlemen. When we return, Bryce Mongeon from O'Ida will join us. We'll talk through the changes to California's Assembly Bill number 5.
6: Pride. It runs deep for those in agriculture. But that pride can also prevent farmers from asking for help when it's needed most. An injury, illness, or natural disaster is a heavy burden for any operation to bear. Farm Rescue is here to help shoulder that burden. We are a nonprofit organization helping farm families in crisis with free planting, haying, and harvesting assistance. There is no pride lost when it comes to Farm Rescue. Learn more at farmrescue.org
5: non-attorney paid spokesperson. Could your house go into foreclosure? Are you behind on your mortgage payments? Foreclosure Protection Services can help save your home as they specialize in foreclosure assistance. If you're behind on your mortgage payments, being threatened with foreclosure, have been denied a loan modification, or been the victim of a predatory loan, call Foreclosure Protection Services now at 800-926-1701. Their network of attorneys and their agents are available to speak to you now. Call Foreclosure Protection Services now at 800-926-1701. That's 800-926-1701. public service announcement brought
3: to you by AARP and the Ed Council.
0: This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.
1: Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson welcome back ladies
0: and gentlemen aoa continues this morning here from the trade show floor at the national farm machinery show in louisville kentucky we're down here with our friends at trelliborg come by booth 5039 we've got fresh coffee being brewed up fancy fancy coffee beverages i should say being brewed up to my right and we've got a lot of tire knowledge here in the booth but we also have a lot of things continuing to develop in the world of agriculture folks as 2023 gets underway it's earnings season and specifically for an ag audience some of the folks reporting their earnings here recently have been restaurants want to get a barometer how's the u.s consumer with regard to food as we move into 2023 well to help give us some insight into this joining us next is hillary russ she's a journalist with reuters she covers the food industry and she's been watching these earnings reports for the past several weeks hillary thank you so much for joining us here today
9: Uh, it's my pleasure mike
0: let's talk first and foremost, Joey, what major restaurant brands were you watching here for earnings season? Who are you keeping an eye on?
9: Sure. Well, we like to look at the, the biggest of the big. Um, so that's always McDonald's. Uh, it also reports earnings often before the rest of the big chains. So it gives us a really interesting barometer to look at, you know, what we might see from the industry as a whole. Uh, we look at uh, Yum! Brands. They also reported already that's uh, KFC, Taco Bell, Pizza Hut. Uh, Habit Burger and Grill. Um, we also look at Restaurant Brands International, which is, uh, Burger King, Popeyes, Tim Hortons, Firehouse Sub. Uh, and then just, you know, for fun, we also look at Starbucks. Um, not, not as food oriented. Obviously they do have lots of food, but, um, really just a behemoth of a company, um, and a really interesting product and customer base. And then also Chipotle, Um, it's not as big as the other companies, but again, it occupies an interesting space. Um, so those are the main companies I I usually look at in the quarter.
0: All right. Well, let's start with the big dog. Let's start with Mm -hmm. McDonald's. That's that value proposition, Hillary. I would assume when interest or inflation rather is surging that McDonald's would be a place that shines. Did earnings bear that out?
9: They definitely did. Um, we certainly saw McDonald's being a beneficiary of, Um, higher across-the-board prices for everything. Um, We saw it earning a little bit um, from all segments of society um, as people started to worry about um, the possibility of a recession, maybe saw their own wallets pinched. Uh, McDonald's was a place uh, both for people looking for a value, uh, and they also said um, that they're seeing customers come even from a, a sort of higher income level.
0: Oh, that's interesting. So this, we assume, would be consumers trading down potentially from a more expensive lunch or dinner option, maybe to McDonald's?
9: Precisely, precisely. Trading down is a, is definitely a concept uh, that's strong in the restaurant industry. And we've sort of been waiting throughout the pandemic to see if this is the kind of thing that would happen. Uh, we've definitely seen a little bit of that. People um, maybe trading their Chipotle burrito bowls. Uh, those can be, you know, 12, 13 bucks, depending on where you are to a McDonald's meal that's a little bit less expensive. Um, but I will also say, you know, it's a misnomer to think that uh, McDonald's and, and fast food in general are, is only for uh, lower income folks. It's, it, you know, even historically, traditionally, plenty of people in what we consider a higher income range, 75,000, $100,000 or more, are also eating fast food all the time. So uh, either way, it's it's attractive at this point to everybody and McDonald's has definitely been a beneficiary of this.
0: All right, good to see there. I want to turn the focus. Well, actually, this is interesting, Hillary, I'm here in Louisville, home of Yum brands. I saw the Yum brands KFC arena downtown Louisville this last night. How are things looking for those uh, that venerable chain?
9: Right. I, so, the, so some of those brands are, are similar kind of idea. Um, certainly Taco Bell has a lot of menu items um, that are priced on the lower end of the scale, and so you can go in there and get a filling a burrito or a soft taco. Uh, And that's done really well. So overall for Yum! Brands, um, comparable sales, which is uh, sales at restaurants that have been open at least a year since, you know, so it's a year-on-year comparison, those sales were up 11%. And and that's great. Um, That that really helped drive uh, uh, earnings this past quarter for Yum! Brands. Um, One of the things we don't know, though, I will say is how much they, they wouldn't break out how much of that was due to the higher prices or due to uh, traffic levels in terms of the number of visits they're actually seeing.
0: Okay, so we don't quite have all the data. But, you know, right. Taylor, you mentioned there are those lower price burritos and taco items at Taco Bell. I don't know if I'm a target customer, but I have seen all <laughs> sorts of advertising for those $149, $2 meals. Did they talk about that at all? Is this a direction they see Taco Bell staying here while prices are high? Is it working for them?
9: They did. Um, yeah, there, there's no reason for them to change that. It's working right now. And that's part of their brand. Um, I think customers who are looking for that know that they can go to some of those brands, um, uh, and and get exactly that kind of deal. Um, they are also, I will say marketing some higher price items to some sort of fancier burritos. There's, you know, maybe putting steak in things, uh, and trying to draw in those, those higher price customers as well. So you'll see a lot of restaurants, including all of yum brands, uh, different brands rolling out things to target. It's like a barbell approach to target the higher income folks who want to spend more and the lower income people who are looking for a deal.
0: All right, the barbell approach, that's a unique concept, or at least it's an interesting concept given the volatility we're seeing here in this space. And Hillary, I want to turn the focus to Chipotle. You mentioned it's not a big dog like a McDonald's or an RBI potentially, but that customer base, that high-end affluent customer, I assume younger, which maybe is a, is a poor assumption on my end, How are they faring? Are they holding their own here through this uh, inflation period?
9: They are. uh, First of all, that is a fair assumption. Uh, Their their customers do tend to be a little younger, a little more affluent. Um, And interestingly enough, Chipotle has done, has just soared really throughout the pandemic. But this past quarter, the fourth quarter, we started to see a little bit of weakness there. Things didn't come in quite as high as expected. Uh, You know, I mean, they still, sales were still up, but but not as much as you might have uh, of expected and certainly not necessarily as strong as they've been uh, throughout the rest of the pandemic. Um, you know, it, it's a company worth watching because they have they have said that they, you know, they've raised their prices a lot, particularly for delivery. Uh, and they have said that their their affluent customers are still coming there and still eating, and they really haven't seen a drop off. Um, and so the, the real question for Chipotle in particular is have they raised prices too much? Um, and I think that's what we're gonna be looking. You know, We're not quite sure if that's the case. I've talked to some analysts who think that they have. Uh, so they they maybe need to sit still for a while with price increases. Um, and that's what I think people are gonna be watching. Um, and Chipotle is really sort of the key company where that is a big issue for, for people watching the space.
0: You know, Hillary, you mentioned, have they raised prices potentially too much? As I was glancing through some of the earnings uh, data If I recall correctly, Chipotle's profit margin was something like 48 percent. Am I remembering that correctly? That seems like a staggeringly high number.
9: Uh, Yeah, I mean, uh, the profit margins are really pretty extraordinary. It depends on which profit margin you're looking at. Um, If you're looking at the restaurant level sort of operating margin versus the Uh, overall company profit margin. But by any account, um, they do seem quite healthy. Uh, It's not quite the same as you might expect from like a small independent mom and pop chain. Their restaurant margins don't tend to be quite so big.
0: Yes, efficiencies of scale certainly apply in the restaurant industry. And with that being said, RBI, Restaurant Brands Incorporated, I'm not sure if they're one of the biggest, but they certainly are up there. How are their brands performing here during this period?
9: Yeah, so Restaurant Brands International is, uh, is an interesting one. They're definitely up there. They've got Burger King in particular, and if you're Canadian, uh, Tim Hortons. Uh, obviously, Timmy's is sort of ever-present in Canada. Um, so, they, you know, it's a mixed bag there, I think. Part of the problem that you'll see there is the, the weight of China. Uh, obviously, China's just reopening, and things have been incredibly choppy there. So certainly Burger King uh, and Pizza Hut, their performances were hurt by pressure from China. Same, same with Starbucks, by the way. Um, but in the U.S., uh, which is mostly everybody's biggest market, Burger King had some of its other problems of its own. Um, it's been sort of undergoing a bit of a, a brand revamp. Um, you know, it wasn't even necessarily the pandemic, but just a little bit of, of weakness over the years. It just didn't quite modernize like McDonald's, for example invested lots and lots of money even before beginning before the pandemic to renovate restaurants to modernize operations modernize the look and feel uh and burger king was a little bit behind mcdonald's in doing that and so that's what they're doing now and so there was a a bit of weakness still um for the for the fourth quarter
0: all right it's gonna take some time to see these improvements play out but i understand it sounds like rbi is going to be spending a lot of money here in their on their burger king franchisees And so we'll just have to see how that plays out. Folks, we have been talking today with Hillary Russ. She is a journalist with Reuters, and she has joined us today. Hillary, uh, I think we have lost Hillary, but thank you so much for joining us today, folks. Stay with us. When AOA returns, we will be back live at the Trellaborg booth. Stay here for more AOA coming up in just a second. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go
3: away. More AOA coming right up. As a farmer, I want a cooperative that's there for me.
4: Not the other way around.
3: A local co-op that works for me and works with CHS. To connect me with local experts I know and trust.
4: And put a global network of markets and supply at my fingertips.
3: A co-op that's here to help
5: us own every day. When you're an owner of a local cooperative connected to CHS, you get local expertise, a proven efficient supply chain, and global market access. Learn more at cooperativeownership.com.
8: You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen. No markets on Monday for the President's Day holiday. So we take a look back at Friday's trade action, both grains and livestock. Fairly quiet trading day on Friday ahead of the 3-day holiday weekend. The corn and soybean markets up a little bit, the wheat market mixed to higher led by Kansas City wheat while we saw livestock trade cattle a little bit higher, hogs a little bit lower. Now, corn futures finished the week last week with modest gains, very low-volume trade. Supportive to corn was the weekly decline in Argentine crop conditions, with the Buenos Aires Exchange dropping their corn rating from 20% to just 11% good to excellent. On the soybean side, able to withstand the test of the 20-day moving average, March beans finished with a small gain in low-volume trade on Friday. The Buenos Aires Exchange showed Argentina soybean conditions going backward again last week with the crop now rated only 9% good to excellent and 56% poor to very poor. And we also saw some freezing temperatures in parts of Argentina here over the weekend, and it'll be interesting to see how that affects trade when we reopen Monday night into Tuesday. For the week, last week, March corn finished the week down two and three quarter cents. December down a quarter penny. March beans were down fifteen and a quarter cents. With November beans up seven and a half cents on the week. Kansas City March wheat was down two and a half cents. Chicago wheat down twenty and a half cents. And Minneapolis March wheat down a half a penny for the week last week. Meantime, in the livestock trade, the live cattle market rallied on the wins the cash cattle market made, but both feeder cattle and lean hogs were under some resistance and pressure Friday. Hog prices closed lower on the daily direct afternoon. Hog report down 33 cents with a weighted average of 76.49. We also saw box beef prices higher. Choice up $1.49, select up $3.25 on Friday. Tuesday's cash cattle call and cash hog call are both expected to be higher. Again, no markets on Monday for President's Day. This is AOA. I'm Jesse Allen reporting.
4: recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to ACretirement.org now. That's ACretirement.org A message from AARP and the Ad Council.
0: You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world.
1: Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson.
0: Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA. We appreciate being a part of your day. You know, the dairy producers across this great country have been buffeted by winds beyond their control for the past three years. We had COVID throw things into disarray, of course, and then we saw all of the disruptions over food service, and now we've been grappling with export issues. Our friends to the north have been creating some trouble for U.S. dairy producers, but... Now we're working with the organizations we have to try to find relief. Joining us for an update on this situation is Shawna Morris. She's the senior vice president for trade policy at both the National Milk Producers Federation and at the U.S. Dairy Export Council. And Shawna, thank you so much for joining us today.
10: Thanks for having me, Mike. Thanks for
0: having me, Mike. I'd like to get started with some of the back and forth that uh, U.S. dairy has had with Canadian, the Canadian dairy industry. Things have not gone Really great up there. What's Canada been doing to disadvantage American dairy producers?
10: Well, what haven't they been doing? <laughs> Not that that's a big shock, I'd say, though. Uh, really, with uh, really, the Canadians on dairy trade date back years and years and years, uh, far before the latest FTA, uh, the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. But ever since that agreement's been put into place a few years ago, Our struggle has really been getting the Canadians to live by that agreement. Most importantly, we've been trying to make sure that the new export access that we got the right to ship to Canada under USMCA, we actually get to take full advantage of. Uh, It's not a huge Uh, amount of access, but what we have is really important to our dairy farmers and dairy manufacturers.
0: And Shauna, could you that that expansion of dairy exports into Canada, though it was small, as you mentioned, it was hard fought by the industry. Can you tell us what the dairy industry was expecting to gain here with USMCA?
10: Yeah, our expectation of what we're likely to gain uh, if Canada finally complies with the agreement is an expansion of our exports into the Canadian market, really across a broad swath of dairy products. We make an awful lot of things here in this country and our dairy industry, high quality products that are also in demand in Canada, whether that's fluid milk to butter to cheese to ingredients like milk powder, all of those had new Tariff rate quotas, so permission to be able to ship into Canada at uh, at no tariffs, effectively, up to certain volume levels. Uh, That's an important expansion, Uh, not the same type of open trade we have with Mexico, thanks to NAFTA, but still more than we would have had prior to USMCA.
0: And for our listeners who aren't in the dairy industry, Shauna, could you elaborate a little bit on why we have these challenges with Canada under USMCA and not with Mexico? What is it about the Canadian dairy industry that makes it a a weird thing to try and confront this?
7: (laughs) That's a good
10: question. Uh, Maybe I'll start on the Mexican side first. Uh, We have fully open trade in dairy products. So zero tariffs for our products headed into Mexico, zero tariffs on Mexican products dairy products headed here into the U.S., and we have ever since the North American Free Trade Agreement was fully implemented many years ago. We actually work really closely with our partners in Mexico and the dairy sector down there and have been able to together expand total demand for dairy in that market over the last several years. So it's a real partnership and tends to work pretty smoothly there. On the Canadian side, in contrast, uh, we've had tariffs for the large part remain in place dairy wasn't part of the original NAFTA. It is part of the new U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement that the last administration negotiated. Uh, And we have access for a certain volume of products to ship tariff-free each year. The Canadian industry, frankly, doesn't like even that, though. And so instead, what we grapple with on the Canadian side is sort of constant scheming and creative brainstorming about how to wriggle out of the commitments that they've made.
0: (laughs) constant scheming Uh, shauna that seems like a really apt description of how canada has operated since usmca has signed i understand now the u.s trade representative has said we are going to begin a formal dispute process under usmca about canadian dairy fill us in what does that look like what does this process mean in terms of uh, of for dairy producers so
10: that process that the That The U.S. Trade Representative's Office initiates and on ag issues that's done in really close cooperation with the Department of Agriculture, as has been the case here, is basically the enforcement tool. So just like in a normal court where if somebody's not doing what they promised to do, uh, you can take them to court uh, to have uh, your rights enforced. That's what this dispute settlement is supposed to do. So it pulls together a panel of three judges, one picked by each of the USMCA countries, uh, to hear the case. So over the next several months now, uh, the U.S. and Canada will be submitting briefs and arguments and writing to the panel of judges and then ultimately have oral arguments in front of them to argue the case from their side. Uh, USGR and USDA did a great job during the first dispute settlement case uh, arguing why Canada wasn't complying, and we know that's what they're going to do this time as well.
0: You know, you mentioned the dispute settlement case and presenting the arguments in front of judges. And then, of course, the next question, Shana, is who are these judges? Are they representing American, Canadian and Mexican interests under the USMCA?
10: They're really charged with helping ensure that the agreement is followed uh, and that countries abide by their commitments. There is a roster of lawyers that the countries have created that can be picked from when dispute settlement cases, so these court cases effectively, need to happen. Uh, There are judges from each of the countries, so there's Canadian uh, lawyers on that, U.S. lawyers, and Mexican ones as well. The goal there being to help ensure that across all three parties there's people looking out for the integrity of the agreement Because frankly, you know, there's more folks that care about this case working properly than just U.S. dairy farmers and manufacturers. It's really the first case under USMCA, and whether it works or not is a really strong bellwether about the enforcement ability for other cases to come.
0: It certainly is. We're hearing conversations under USMCA heat up on the corn side. Of course, as our listeners remember, Mexico's planned ban on the uh, import of GMO corn here this next year, see that develop under USMCA. But Shauna, on the dairy side specifically, this isn't the first time USMCA has considered a challenge to the dairy industry, is it?
10: It's not, it's it's our second go (laughs) round.
0: And so my question then would be, What happened after the first one? Why didn't Canada get the memo?
10: (laughs) That's a good question. I'd say the first one in our view, um, again, was well argued by the US government, but the panel uh, considering the case took a really narrow view of the work that needed done. Uh, They ruled on only one of the violations by Canada, so only one out of the many things Canada was doing wrong that wasn't complying with the agreement on dairy trade. And so the Canadians interpreted that to say, well, if we just fix one tiny thing, uh, we'll wash our hands and we're good here. And that's just not the case. Uh, So for Uh, last year, for instance, we saw very minimal changes to how Canada was handling its dairy market access uh, provisions. And so we still have many of the same problems. This case is taking a broad view of challenging all of the areas where we're continuing to struggle with Canadian dairy access. And our expectation is that the panel considers each of those. The agreement has a lot of provisions on how to handle market access. And we know that the negotiators put them in for a reason uh, and that we really need a ruling across the board so that we see the changes we need to from Canada.
0: And, of course, with the ruling, if it, they do side with American producers, this opens the potential for some sort of punishment, right, for Canada, some sort of retaliation. Shauna, what could that look like under USMCA, and would it be broad enough to get the Canadians' attention?
10: Uh, you're right. Uh, the stick the here, so to speak, is that if a country doesn't comply with the panel report findings in a case like this, then the alternative is levying retaliation. What that means here would be tariffs applied on Canadian products coming into the U.S. How that happens typically is that USTR develops a list of different uh, products that it's proposing attaching additional tariffs to and what those higher tariffs would be, and then publishes that for public comment. Uh, We think, you know, frankly, we've been on the other side of the fence sometimes uh, where other countries have issued retaliatory threats or actually put them into effect on our dairy exports if the U.S. wasn't quickly compliant in other cases, Uh, and we've seen that they can be pretty effective. So yes, that's not where we hope this will end. We we certainly hope that Canada decides at the end of this process to change its ways and make the reforms that are needed, but if not, retaliation is there and it's a tool that the U.S. will need to take uh, advantage of if it has to.
0: Shauna, since this complaint has now been formally drafted by the USTR, is there the potential that Canada could voluntarily open up their, uh, their markets for more U.S. dairy? And if so, would that address the concerns?
10: <laughs> uh, it's not possible, no. Not in practice. Uh, they certainly could choose to do that, but the politics in Canada mean that they simply would not do that. Uh, In reality, they'll have to be forced through this process to make the changes that need made here, which is why we think it's so important that the administration went ahead with this second case.
0: All right. So they're pushing ahead. USTR is engaging on this issue. Shauna, timeline wise, you mentioned this could drag out over several months. First hearing, do we know when that might be happening?
10: Uh, probably sometime uh, late spring, early summer, uh, based on the typical USMCA timeline for these cases, I'd expect you know probably around the the latter portion of the third quarter is when we're likely when to see a ruling on it. On that's it. actually why really really like to see dealing forward with dealing the trade disputes, and that's the direct outgrowth of the new USMCA.
0: All right, we'll see how it all plays out, folks. We've been speaking with Shauna Norris, Senior Vice President of Trade for the National Milk Producers Federation and the U.S. Dairy Export Council. Shauna, thanks for joining us today. And, folks, stick around. We'll have more AOA coming up here when we return. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up.
7: we can make a difference, bite by bite.
8: What a great organization. Helping families in need like ours, it's a godsend.
6: When an unexpected crisis strikes, Farm Rescue is here to help. Assistance is available free of charge to farm families experiencing a major injury, illness, or natural disaster. Our volunteers and equipment are ready to spring into action with planting, haying, and harvest support. If you or someone you know could use a helping hand, Visit farmrescue.org today.
2: Welcome to the 2023 corn sprint. Corn is in the blocks and ready to run. Biopath and Power Coat plants with a strong start to take the lead. Fueled by Mosaic Biological Fertilizer Complements for maximum performance and better nutrient
5: uptake. We're seeing a strong return on fertilizer investment in this sprint. Biopath and Power Coat corn just continue to grow ahead. Improve your corn's nutrient use with Mosaic Biologicals. For corn that stays on track in the sprint, start training at CornSprint.com.
11: Hi, I'm news correspondent Bob Woodruff. In 2006, a roadside bomb struck the armored vehicle I was riding in while reporting from Iraq. I sustained a life-threatening traumatic brain injury. The military term, got your six, means I have your back. And that day, our service members had mine. During my recovery, I learned firsthand the challenges facing our service members who return home with injuries while serving their fellow service members always had their six. Now that they're home, it is our turn. We started the Bob Woodard Foundation to make sure that the camaraderie and support they relied on in the military carries on. And we need you. Please join us as part of the Got Your Six initiative and help us be there for impacted veteran service members and their families. They've had our backs. It's time we have theirs. Learn more at gotyoursix.org. That's gotyoursix.org. Using the number six.
0: This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.
1: Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson.
0: Welcome back, folks. Well, last week, I had the chance to travel up to Fargo for the seventh annual Northern Corn Soy Expo held in the Fargo Dome. And I got to catch up with a lot of those growers in that area about their thoughts on this past year and their expectations for this year ahead. Joining us for this next segment is Chris Brossard. He is the chair of the North Dakota Soybean Council. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today.
12: Yeah, good morning, Mike. Thank you for having me. Well, I tell you, seven, seven different events you've had
0: up here for the Northern Corn Soy Expo. Chris, what's the reason for doing this event here on on Valentine's well Day.
12: generally we'd like to say it's uh, so we could have a blizzard but you know so <laughs> but really really just to get the word out uh, you know inform everybody uh, get get people off the farm um, you know take 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 a look at what's relevant within the industry, um, direction for the industry, uh, you know, both corn, soybeans, and agriculture in general. So, you know, what, what we can what we can do not only for today, but for the future um, of the industry in the state.
0: That's what it's all about. And Chris, as we think about what's happening in North Dakota from an agricultural perspective, and I want to talk soybeans first, since that's the side you're here representing, there's some processing capacity coming to this state, isn't there on the soybean front?
12: Yes, absolutely, Mike. So it's, uh, you know, a very exciting time, uh, you know, within the state, uh, within the industry, uh, we're going to see a lot of changes here in the next, uh, you know, two, three, four, five, 10 years, not only, you know, for, for ourselves as farmers, but for, uh, the next generation to come.
0: Chris, for folks outside North Dakota, what, what is coming to this state in terms of soybean processing, some big expansions?
12: Yes. Yes. So, uh, we, we went from uh, a year ago to not having any, uh, crushed plants here within the state to having three announced. So, um, if we look at that, uh, you know, if uh, those three, when those three plants come online, um, what I'd tell you just off top memory is each plant, you could say will roughly um, process uh, around 50 million bushels of soybeans. So uh, those three plants would potentially use all of the soybeans within this state. So, you know, I mean, granted there's, there's a couple of them right on the border. You know, we'll be, you know, there's gonna be some beans probably out of Canada, some out of Minnesota, some sure. of South Dakota, you know, that, you know, so we're not gonna use everything within the state, right? But that's a huge, huge change. And we, we think about that uh almost a hundred percent of our our soybeans are shipped out to the pacific northwest today so we look at the shift that that's going to take uh, uh there's a lot of things that go along with that you know the the livestock industry here within the state you know we we want to look at uh, things that we can do to help that uh, indus- industry involve evolve and uh, and come along um you know we're going to have a lot of you know um crush here we're going to have a lot of meal you think about the the oil um where are we going to you know be shipping that uh, biofuels you know all There's just a lot of excitement here.
0: There is a lot of excitement. And, Chris, I mean, the North Dakota soybean story has been incredible. The production growth that's developed up here, as you talk to other soybean growers around the state, are they prepared to keep putting some more acres in the ground to feed those processing plants?
12: Yes, yes, they sure are, Mike. You know, and, uh, you know, I think we have a lot of potential out uh, to the West. Uh, You know, uh, an example I could use is is myself. Uh, 20 years ago, I came back home to farm. Uh, You know, in our area, we raised uh, zero acres of soybeans. You're kind of in the middle of North Dakota, right? Yep. North, central North Dakota. We're about 30 miles off the Canadian border. So geographical center in North America, rugby. Uh, (laughs) You know, I'm I'm from Wolford, but we're 25 miles away. And, uh, you know, we look at that and and I look at uh, what we've done at and on our farm is we went from zero acres to 50% of our acres are now soybeans. So, you know, we're going to keep that, uh, you know, in a rotation, you know, with wheat, barley, corn. Um, we do raise a little bit of canola as well but uh, you know what there's there is such a huge potential to the west uh, where soybeans are a good fit they're good for you know the soil um, you know, they're, they're, you know, good good profitability. Um, and I think as we, you know, varieties continue to develop drought tolerance and those kind of things, um, there's just uh, huge potential uh, to the West.
0: Okay. It's going to be interesting to watch this industry continue to mature in North Dakota. Chris, I, I want to turn the focus to something different. I understand this year you are serving as the chair of the Soy Transportation Coalition. Is that right?
12: Yes, yes. Uh, Mike, I was fortunate enough to be elected to that position uh, in November um, or December, I guess, at our annual meeting. So. Alright. All right, so in uh,
0: December, you yes. moved into that role. So all of 2022, we had rail disruptions, we had barge, you know, all the troubles. I was on the phone with <laughs> Mike Steenhook from the STC almost every day. Hopefully, it's going to look a little more smoothly this
12: year. It, well, that, that's the hope. You know, we can always hope that, uh, you know, uh, Mother Nature will cooperate, right? The good Lord is going to give us a little rain, you know, a little extra rain. Uh, and, and it looks like, you know, those things are coming with the snow load and stuff. Uh, the river levels are starting to come back up. But, you know, not, uh, I mean, being from North Dakota, you know, and, and, uh, it's an honor to serve on, on the STC, uh, with Mike, uh, he's always very, very knowledgeable. And, uh, you know, one thing I found very interesting is just, uh, you know, we don't think about, uh, the barge traffic, right? I mean, we see it, we, we hear about it, we know kind of what it is, but, you know, they don't have storage facilities. A lot of those farmers there, everything goes right, right to the river and they ship it right down the river. So, you know, a lot of those guys are, you know, they're talking about harvesting their, their crop and they're like, Hey, you know, it's, uh, they're looking at, a you know, uh, plus a dollar, right, for a basis. And they're going, oh, this is, this is crazy. It's unheard of. And we're like, yeah, well, that's kind of normal, right? It hasn't been normal for us. The last couple of years has been more of a, you know, minus 30 to minus 50, right. but, but uh, they're used to a positive, you know, a, a plus 10 or a minus 10, you know, and, and what I thought was really interesting um, uh, in, in looking at and learning is, I don't remember the exact number, but it's something like for every uh, one foot uh, level depth on the river, you can load like five, I think it was like 5,000 bushels less if I remember right, of soybeans on a barge. Well, you start thinking about that, a barge is, you know, let's say in general, 50,000 bushels. Yeah. Well, the, the the river was down three feet 15,000 less bushels they can't get their crop loaded they can't get it out you know they're worried about you know things spoiling you know and we're sitting there going well, why don't you just put it in your grain beds you know whatever but but you know they 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 don't have a reason for it right? yeah. so i mean you know it's not that often that they have those disruptions so you know uh there's a lot of good work there um that we do not only you know on on uh you know dredging you know the mississippi river um that we, we were able to help with uh we're looking at you know um being able to do some things out on uh the west coast pacific northwest uh with some yes. different w- rail there and and uh um, looking at uh, how we can we can help with uh you know what 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 can we do to help the process become more efficient of loading and unloading meals. so yeah. you know that's going to be a big thing not only for north dakota but you know all the midwest here right so you know we're, we're always looking at those things there's always bridges uh roads You know, uh, Mike is always, uh, you know, kind of, he's just abreast, you know, um, and up to, up to, par on everything that's uh, coming down the pipeline. There,
0: That's true. He's got his fingers in everything. Folks, we have been talking with Chris Brosart. He is the chair of the North Dakota Soybean Council, currently serving as chair of the Soybean Transportation Coalition. Chris, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, Thanks for having me, Mike. Well, our thanks to Chris Brosart. And folks, thanks to you for joining us today. Today has been President's Day. Just a reminder, we'll be back live tomorrow. We'll be talking weather with our friend John Baranek. We'll be diving into the markets and we'll be covering the other aspects of agriculture that continue to change. Thanks, for listening, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow for more AOA. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.
5: non-attorney paid spokesperson. Could your house go into foreclosure? Are you behind on your mortgage payments? Foreclosure Protection Services can help save your home as they specialize in foreclosure assistance. If you're behind on your mortgage payments, being threatened with foreclosure, have been denied a loan modification, or been the victim of a predatory loan, call Foreclosure Protection Services now at 800-926-1701. Their network of attorneys and their agents are available to speak to you now. Call Foreclosure Protection Services now at 800-926-1701. That's 800-926-1701.